Well, I have the tremendous privilege of introducing you to one of my new friends. Um, you're all in for a real treat this morning. This man standing next to me, his name is Peter Williams, and he's going to be opening the scriptures with us today. Peter has a PhD from Cambridge and is the principal of the Tyndale House at Cambridge currently, which is one of the world's kind of greatest research institutes for the scriptures. Um, he has written a couple of books, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, maybe you've heard of that one. That one's been translated into 10 languages. Quite a few people read that one. Well done on that. Um, he also just wrote one that just came out called The Surprising Genius of Jesus uh, that, that I, th I would encourage all of you to get a copy of. Um, he also helped to oversee the translation work of the English Standard Version, which we like around here. That was a good job as well. Uh, he's done a few things. There's one other. You're the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. That's... Whatever that is. Yeah. I'll say this. I'll say this. It is a real gift that Peter's with us today. It feels like God's kindness to us as a family uh, to have this new friend. And, and more than those things, he's the husband to his wife, Catherine, dad to two nearly adult children. And this is not merely intellectual for him. As he's developed a friendship with Tim Cornelson and as I've gotten to interact with him a little bit, what, what Tim had told me to be true, what I see to be true is this. This marks the whole of his life. And it's for all of those reasons that we eagerly welcome him today. We're glad to sit under the teaching of the word. I'd love to pray for him and for this time and then I'm gonna get out of the way. So let's pray. God, thank you for Peter and the ways that you've been at work in him for a long time and the ways that he's come to serve our family today. And we all together thank you, God, that you are a speaking God, a present God, a God whose word is alive, active, sharp, powerful, transformative. I pray that everyone in the room would be active in these coming moments, that this wouldn't be a time where Peter is active and we all passively sit, but that we all together actively receive your word and cherish your word and welcome it and all of its transforming power into the full of our lives. And so you're welcomed in this place. Do with us as you please. We thank you in advance for the ways that you're going to tend to your people and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen and amen. Thank you, amen. Peter. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your welcome here. It's really great to be among you. I've enjoyed uh, all the conversations I've had uh, as I've been talking to people uh, around here, and I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you. Um, fairly incredibly, got a passage which I feel is rather relevant for you. Uh, you, as God's people, have been moving around a little bit, uh, building-wise, and we're looking this morning at 2 Samuel 6, which is about God's presence moving around. And the really good thing is, God guarantees to be present where two or three are gathered in his name. So we know he's here in the midst. God's presence has been moving around with you uh, as you've been moving where you worship. And we're looking at this passage uh, from 2 Samuel 6 that seems incredibly uh, relevant uh, to you. God is present here right now. But it's also a difficult passage because there are two different scenes at least one of which is worship going really badly wrong and is terrible and tragic and sad and someone dies. And then the second scene where something is hugely joyful. So we're going to learn about worship. But we need to think first about this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, many of you will have watched Indiana Jones. You'll be familiar with the concept of the Ark of the Covenant. But what I want you to think about is that this is a golden box 
that's four forearms long, two forearms long, two deep. That's the way they measure things, cubits. And it's the place that God has guaranteed to meet with his people. It is the object on the planet which God at this time has most connected the promise of his presence with, okay? That's an important thing to realize. Now, God's presence is everywhere. God is everywhere. But he also makes his presence specially known in some places. For instance, the Garden of Eden, he was there. Or in heaven, he's there. I was talking to a couple of people who are in a particular sect um, uh, recently who believe that God actually has a physical body. So they, you know, they read the stuff like, has he got body parts, uh, which is not what you're meant to read when it says the arm of the Lord. The clue is it's always singular. Uh, so it, it is a metaphor. You can't split God into bits, right? So I asked them this question, which is bigger, heaven or God? And they sort of paused. They, they'd never really thought about that before. Of course God is bigger than heaven, right? That's what Solomon says. The heaven of heavens can't contain God. So even heaven, which is bigger than we could possibly imagine, is tiny relative to God. So for God to display himself in heaven or God to display himself on a wooden box that is just, um, sorry, it's not four um, forearms long, it's four feet long. Uh, it's uh, two and a half forearms long. So that's just about this big. It's, it's no more shrinking for God and God doesn't shrink, okay? He's condescending to show himself. But he also, we read through the Bible, he shows himself specifically in the tabernacle, which they build in the wilderness, the Israelites build, and that's got at the center the Holy of Holies. Then there's a solid building, a temple. Then in the New Testament, God comes to earth in the person of Christ, fully God, contracted, however, in a human size. How, how that happens, that just blows my mind. But then in the New Testament, we find out that when we're in Christ, Christ dwells in us, God dwells in us, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we learn that God meets amongst his people. So God is everywhere at the same time as we can say God is specially somewhere, right? I want you to hold those two things together. God's revealing his power, his grace in particular places. So what we're gonna look at, brief outline today, is we're gonna look at worship, Firstly, that dishonors God. Then worship that honors God. And finally, don't miss out. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. So to get to our text, we need to think about the historical background. Israelites have come out of Egypt. God's brought them out miraculously. And they've, uh, he's told them to build a tabernacle and to build an ark. And for a number of years, it moved around. It was in different places. It wasn't just fixed in one place. Then one time, the Israelites were fighting against their neighbors, the Philistines, okay? And they thought that they could get themselves some luck and some of God's power on their side if they just took along this golden box. God's not gonna be just taken around like that. You can't pick up God and carry him around. He's not a thing, right? So you can't guarantee anything by carrying around a magical object, right? So Ark does nothing, it gets captured. Then the Philistines say, well, we're going to put this into our temple. That's when God uh, shows his power. And their idol falls and they start getting plagues and they move it to different places. It doesn't work. They realize they've got to give it back. So they send it back on a cart and Israelites who receive it do the wrong thing. They look at it and some of them die. 
And so as a result, the ark just stays there for ages at the house of Abinadab. But then God chooses a particular city where he's going to show his name. It's Jerusalem. And David has the idea, and it's a good idea, it's an idea from God, that it's right to bring up the special object that is associated with God's presence to the city. So that's what they're going to do. And it should be the greatest celebration ever. Think of the scene that we have as we consider this. 30,000 men of Israel, the top leaders, coming to bring this object up. The symbol of God's presence to the place that he has said he's going to be. Now, since the Garden of Eden, since we went away from God, we've been cut off from God's presence. We long for God's presence. How can we have a place that we can be? Well, suddenly God's saying, there's a place you can go and I will be there. So although God's withdrawn his presence, you can go and meet with him. What a big cause for celebration. And so 30,000 of these leaders are bringing up the Ark of the Temple Ark of the Covenant, and there's music, there's shouting, there are so many different musical instruments. We're going to see two celebrations, but this first one is nothing like as good as the second one. It's got some similarities, it's got David, it's got the Ark, they're heading to Jerusalem, it's got music, but there are things that are wrong, and one particular thing that's wrong, they are not following God's really clear instructions. God gave his word in the fourth book of the Bible, the fourth chapter, that's Numbers chapter four, he told about how this box was to be carried. And it could only be carried in particular ways and not on a car. The priests would come in and they would cover it with skins so that before it was carried, the people carrying it couldn't see it. And they would carry it on their shoulders with poles. There was a group, a tribe called the Levites, and they're divided into three groups. And Numbers chapter 7 tells you about how there are six carts to be given to the Levites to help them with their work. One of the groups gets four carts, one of the groups gets two carts, one of the groups gets no carts. They're the group that carries the Ark of the Tabernacle. The Kohathites not allowed carts. Now you would have thought you're carrying a heavy wooden box. A cart would be a really good idea, and God says no. You've got to realize this is different. This needs to be shown every bit of respect. And here they are at the time of David. And what are they doing? They're trying to carry this thing on a cart. Okay, they try a new cart. So they're, they're, they're trying a bit, but they're not doing the right thing. And so the ark is on this cart. It's just being laden there and it's being carried along and it stumbles. And then this man, Uzzah, reaches out his hand to just try and stable it, stabilize it, and he's struck dead. Wow! Isn't that an overreaction? Think about how the celebration comes to a screeching halt. All that music going on, all those people, and it's just a disaster. It's the worst worship meeting you could possibly imagine. It's all gone horribly wrong. God is angry because he's not been respected. But David is angry too. He's angry because the celebration that he's arranged has just gone horribly wrong. All those people that have moved from their towns to be there at this time, it's just horrific. But that's one reaction we see in verse 8 from David. He's angry about the party being ruined. 
But in verse 9, we see there's another emotion for him. He's fearful. He's afraid. He's thinking, God is really scary. This ark is really scary. I don't want this coming to me. Now, at one level, he's right. He's absolutely right to fear God, but he's missed out on something absolutely vital. And we see that when he temporarily parks the ark at the house of a guy called Obed-Edom. Because there, God shows his blessing. And everything connected with that house is blessed. So it's right to think that God's presence is fearsome, that God's a consuming fire, that he's holy. But you can think of that and forget that he's a blessing God, whose presence is there in order to bless. God's the life-giving God. He's called the living God because he always likes to give life. He always prefers life over death. Everything in the Bible testifies to that. His heart is life-giving. He, when, when people die, when they perish, when they're judged, there's never any pleasure for God in that. His heart is for everyone to be saved. And David saw that fear, but he didn't see the blessing. And I want us to go away today with a fear of God, an awe of God, but also recognizing the heart of God to bless. And so what we see is the terrible results for Uzzah. But isn't that a bit of an overreaction? I mean, he he was trying to help, wasn't he? Well, firstly, of course, he's not the only one to blame. Everyone was not following the clear instructions of God. So it's not that all the blame is on Uzzah, right? David got things wrong, Uzzah had the consequences. But we also accept in our society that there are big consequences about touch. I mean, we we saw that, you know, recently uh, with the whole COVID thing. But go into a restaurant, we expect the, wait, the staff in the restaurant to follow rules about touch. If they come in and are not following some basic rules about what they touch, we're probably not going to go back there again. Or what about hospitals? Pretty big thing there. I've got a little scar on my middle finger, my left hand, um, from when I did some research over 52 years ago on an electrical outlet. Um, and yeah, I, I, there are consequences to what you touch. If you're celebrating someone's birthday, don't you want to think about what they like and what they don't like as you have the celebration? Well, God's told us what he likes and what he doesn't like. It's all clear. So there are consequences when they do this. Now, for worship today, it's not about style. It's not about this instrument, that instrument, this musical style, whatever. It's much more about who God is acknowledging who he is and acknowledging what he's done and coming to him through Jesus Christ, okay? But back then, God had given clear instructions. This is the way you to do it. And the reason why is we've got to understand a lot of the Old Testament is pictures. It's big pictures to work principles into our mind. We can actually see them worked out. And one of the things about that holiness of God is you've got to realize how many, like, we're physically separated from him in order to understand the privilege that we have in the New Testament of the access that we get to God. So that's the first thing we see. The worship that dishonors God fundamentally is not done according to God's instructions. So let's look at the worship that honors God and what amazing worship it is. It's so joyful and it's, you know, this time it's so much better. It's not just the leaders, it's everyone, men and women. Oh, and there's food as well. <laughs> there's sacrifices. 
I mean, that was a missing thing. We approach God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They had no sacrifices at the first thing. But this time when they've carried it just six steps, there are sacrifices. When it gets to a destination, there are sacrifices. You can read over in First Chronicles chapter 15 and it starts giving you the names of all the different people involved, the leaders involved. And there were eight different um, people doing this sort of stringed instrument and six doing that sort of stringed instrument. Oh, and there are wind instruments as well this time, seven people on those in Chronicles and all that sort of thing. It's an amazing celebration. Earlier this year in um, my country, we had this thing, little thing called a coronation. Uh, and I'm one of those crazy people who camped out. I actually camped out for two nights to get front row uh, spot. Of course, I didn't get the very front row because some people camped out for nine nights. But, but you know, I, 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 got, I got a really, really, I got the best camera spot, I think. Um, and I did that and, you know, along comes um, someone in, in a gold carriage, okay? Uh, and they're just an ordinary human. That's all they are, you know, so they've got a position and, you know, can enjoy a bit of symbolism. Uh, don't take it too seriously, but, you know, so on. But it, you can enjoy that. I did that for a human. Think about this. This is God's presence itself coming up. What an amazing thing. And so what do they have? They have banging instruments. They have blowing instruments. They have stringed instruments. They have shouting and energetic dancing. I mean, this is... David dancing with all his might, sending his heart rate really high as he whirls around. Um, this is actually the greatest moment in David's life. This is far more exciting than killing Goliath, defeating the enemy. This is God's presence. And you know what? We have more reason to celebrate, more reason to celebrate. Look, that was a box that God had associated his name with, okay? Speaking with respect, but it was a box. And it would come to Jerusalem and only the high priest could go in once a year with sacrifice. David would never get to go in there. So there was a presence of God, but they were still cut off. Now, when Jesus died on the cross and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the temple curtain was torn and the way made open for the presence of God. What's more? What's more holy, the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Spirit? Or the Holy Spirit, and he indwells you. So you have more access to God's presence than David had and was celebrating about with all his might then. Because by Christ's blood, cleansing us from all our sin, all of the rotten stuff in our heart is taken away in God's sight and he dwells, his Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's why people in the New Testament are called holies. You are a saint. That, another way of saying saint is you are a holy. You are a special. That's how God sees you, every single one. And that's shocking because we're so ordinary and we're so sinful. Like how can he go around saying, you're a holy, you're a holy. That's what he does. Paul writes letters to the holies in this place, in that place. It's astounding. But that's what happens by Christ's blood and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are holier in God's sight than that amazing golden box. So don't we have reason to celebrate now? We have so much more reason for total worship. Worship involves our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So right worship is worship that approaches God the way he says he should be approached. And we know that is through Christ. But I want us to look thirdly 
about not missing out. It would be so easy to miss out. And here we have this lady, Mikal. And she, I want to tell you a bit of her story. She was the daughter of King Saul, who was the king before David, who had not followed God's word, and as a result had been moved, removed from the throne. And she took an early fancy to David, and it was shortly after he had defeated Goliath. So he, he seemed heroic, bit of a hunk. Well, okay, he'd use a stone, but you know, he was pretty amazing. And that was the person uh, she took a fancy to, and Saul also saw the marriage as rather convenient because that would be a way of trying to get rid of uh, David because he sets in the challenge of killing 100 Philistines, Philistines and bringing their foreskins. Uh, he actually does 200 um, and, so, and he actually survives. So Saul was still trying to kill him because he's envious. Envy is a hugely powerful thing. And he's envious of his success. He wants to get rid of him. And so one time he tries to kill David when He's pretending to be ill in bed. And uh, this time, Michal covers for him. She gets the idols that are in the house. Not sure where they've got idols. I don't think that's very good. And she puts them in the bed, and you know, he escapes out of the window. And then they're separated for a while. Then she gets married to someone else, and then he marries someone else, and it all goes a bit wrong. By the way, don't look at David's marriage life for a good example. It's clearly a bad example. And the Bible is telling us that. You can think when you read the Bible that these are men of God. Oh, and look, they have multiple wives. And therefore, like, it's okay with that. No, it's not. The Bible is clearly showing you with each one of these people how disastrous it is. Abraham, multiple wives, um, and there's conflict. Probably conflict in the world now because of that. Okay? Uh, Jacob, multiple wives, and his children are trying to kill each other. They sell Joseph into slavery. David, he has multiple wives, and what's happening between the kids? Rape, murder. It's horrible. That's how the Bible is showing us in narrative terms this is a horrible choice, okay? So we've got to say David is in some ways a good example, and in some ways is a horrible example, and that's the way we're meant to be prepared in the pictures of the Old Testament for Jesus, who is perfect in every way. Each one of the pictures in the Old Testament, when it's a person, you see their failures as well. And then that gives you a contrast when you come to Jesus. So anyway, Michal got married to someone else. Then David became king of the whole kingdom and he demanded Michal back. And that's what happened. But it seems there wasn't much love there, all rather irregular. And what we see, I'm not going to dwell on their relationship so much as on this exchange. David is celebrating the greatest thing there was to celebrate then. The ark, God's presence, coming and being where you could meet it, where you could go there. It was a great thing. And what is Michal doing? She's despising him in her heart because she feels it's undignified. It's uncool. It's below his rank. He's a king. He can hire dancers. They can dance before him. He shouldn't be dancing. She's concerned about respectability. She's concerned about looks. And she's not concerned about David who loves God. And she despises the one that God has anointed and is going to work through. Literally at the moment of greatest celebration, she misses out because she's concerned about looks. 
Are we ever concerned about looks? Do we miss out because we're concerned about how things look? So I come from this British culture where we got a reputation for that stiff upper lip, which means you're not meant to show emotions, you know, to hide them down uh, and just try and be reserved. Do we in my country miss out on worship of God because we're so concerned about preserving the way people perceive us and look? Or in your situation, you're concerned about your business reputation, reputation amongst family, maybe a reputation in school, maybe reputation on social media, carefully curating that image, that perception people have of you in the world, how they're going to think of you. You're concerned about how you look. I'm concerned about how we look. I look and we miss out. We miss out on the worship of God because we're so focused in on ourselves. It says in the book of James, confess your sins to one another. Clearly there's a blessing that goes with when we just open up and say how rotten we are. and We, we say to each other what, what's wrong. But the great thing is by God's grace, we're saved and changed, right? But we can be so concerned about the way we look that we never want to confess the sin and we miss out on the blessing. We're so concerned about being respectable. Now, it's not that when we worship, we shouldn't be concerned about other people. We should be very concerned about other people. You can worship in a way that's really unhelpful for other people. But that's not the focus here. When you're worshiping, your focus should be on God. And it's not that you forget the other people, it's that you forget yourself. That's what needs to happen when we worship. We're not thinking, oh, how is that person perceiving me? Of course, we're caring about the other people. That's what we're meant to do in a church. We're meant to love others as Christ loved us. But we're not meant to be thinking about ourselves. And I think it's not just in worship, but in our lives generally, that we are missing out on the joy God gives because we're concerned. Look, I hang out quite a lot with academics, right? You know, scholars hugely paranoid group about their own reputation, spending all their time curating carefully their brand, their name. And that's why a lot of the time people can be really cowardly. When an idea comes along, they want to keep their head down. They don't want to challenge something they know to, know to be wrong because they might just jeopardize their reputation. As a result, they miss out on the blessing. It's when people are not concerned about their reputation. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think of C.S. Lewis. They're really powerful because they speak out. Same in politics. When you're not concerned about your reputation, you say it. Same in journalism. Same in all sorts of walks of life. When you say, I am serving God, both in my worship here in the church, when I'm singing with all my heart, and when I'm in my work, I am serving God. And it's when that you, you get to that point that there is such a blessing. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, it can be incredibly hard. The picture God gives us in the Bible of the person who ultimately said goodbye to their reputation is Jesus Christ himself, who it says in Philippians chapter 2, was prepared to be humbled even to the death on the cross. And it's through that that, of course, he has given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name should, should bow. So the greatest reputation comes for him precisely because he was prepared 
to be counted as nothing. He was prepared to be despised. He wasn't thinking about looks. He wasn't thinking about reputation. He was thinking about obedience to his father. So how do we apply this to us today? Well, look, God is everywhere and he specially shows himself some places. He specially shows himself when his people meet together, when you meet together on a Sunday, when you meet in house churches. God is specially there, two or three. God moves, you move building as you go from this wonderful place to another wonderful place. God's gonna come with you. Why is he with us? Because Christ on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you, you forsaken me? He was abandoned by his father's presence to give us access to his father's presence. And as he died on the cross, took our sins so that we are holier than the ark. And we can be a place where we meet God in our own hearts and other people can meet God through us when they come to us meeting together and as we take God as his ambassadors out to people. Think of the contrast between the Old Testament and the New. With this ark, when Uzzah touched the ark, he died. When the Holy One, Jesus Christ, came into the world and he touched a leper, the leper was healed. When he touched a dead man, he was raised to life. Because we need the Old Testament to teach us about how God always is in his holiness. God's not a different God now than the God who struck us a dead. He is every bit that holy, every bit that unapproachable, except for through Christ. And when Christ God came into the world and suffered on our behalf, we get access, not just so that God is somewhere we can go to, but in us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a cause to celebrate all because of what he's done. So think about what this does for us. Are we gonna miss out on things by not paying attention to God's word? Please not. Are we gonna miss out on things by being worried about looks, being worried what thing people think about us? Think how much you miss out when you're concerned about what other people think. I'm a people pleaser, fundamentally as a personality. I miss out on a lot that way. I've, I've been concerned about what people think about me and they're no longer with us. Why was I ever concerned? So much of the time we're concerned about reputation, we need to let that go. But also we can miss out by despising others when they worship, looking down on them. We need to be liberated to worship God as he wants us to, remembering that we have far more reason to give thanks to God than that huge celebration of all of the people of Israel together bringing up the ark into Jerusalem. We have God in us now by Christ Jesus. That's amazing. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you you've given us reason to celebrate. Help us to celebrate. Go out from here with a string of uh, joy in our steps. 
Pray for those who are particularly suffering at this time, that they will just know your presence with them, uh, more closely to them uh, than ever before. May they know you with them in that deep valley. And Lord, help us all to worship you, that you have condescended to be amongst us. For Jesus' sake, amen.